So at this time of night, 10 days from now, presents will probably have been opened. The roast beast consumed and the Queen shared her message to the UK and Commonwealth, whatever she may say. At least that's what I expect to have happened. Who knows, maybe something different from a black bag filled with wrapping paper and a tum filled with Christmas dinner will be the course of your day. But our expectations are usually related to our past experience. What we expect to happen is based on what has happened. It's the only way we kind of imagine something for the future. Elizabeth and Mary, of course, are expecting, but in a different way. Each has the promise from God of a son, but yet, in each case, it is their first child. And their experiences of life are far removed. Elizabeth, an older woman, supposedly past childbearing years, might have been considered an embarrassment to her family in the culture of the day. Earlier in the chapter, Elizabeth even refers to her childlessness as having been her disgrace. We today, I would hope, would not see things in such a way, though many are still pressured about children, and this can cause great pain in some families. The lack of a child in marriages of the first century might have led to divorce. But as testimony to their faithfulness, Zechariah and Elizabeth stayed together. They remained together throughout all their years, trusting in each other and trusting in the Lord faithful witnesses to God. But now, when conception was considered impossible, God does something. God acts. God moves in mysterious ways. And it's just as he did with Abram and Sarah, as he did with Elkanah and Hannah. God has a plan and he brings it forth. And the fact that his plan is not what others expect or what others are used to experiencing is completely by the way. God has a plan. And God's plan sometimes does strange things. A young, pregnant Mary. She would travel 80 miles, perhaps, to the hill country of Judea, 
And that is not in itself explained by the bit that comes before this in the Bible, the revelation of Elizabeth's own six months of pregnancy. But maybe it's more by society's pressure. The embarrassment or disgrace of Mary is maybe the opposite of Elizabeth. The young betrothed woman is pregnant. Until relevantly recent times in our own society, pregnancy outside of marriage was taboo. Even within a faith community, generally still it is. Sex before marriage being against God's way. Add into this the issue that the fiancé is not the father. And then the topic is even more complex let alone the structure and law of the first century Holy Land, which would have seen such a girl perhaps stoned to death. So what is to be done in such circumstances? Still, in early 20th century Britain, 100 years ago, a pregnant daughter might be sent away for a period of time. Maybe before the news became public in her village. My own second cousin's family all came from and lived in Lockerbie, 20 miles away from the town where I grew up. But my granny's birth certificate shows she was born where I lived as a child. And it also shows only one parent's name, my granny's mother's maiden name. It's to my mind that Mary maybe travelled to a quieter place while things moved forward and God's plan began to be explored in a new way. Matthew's Gospel tells us of an angel's visit in a dream to Joseph, after which he decides to take Mary as his wife. But there is not much indication of time scale for when that happens. There's not much indication at all for the nine months between Gabriel coming to Mary, the dream of Joseph, the journey to Bethlehem, before we get to Christ's birth. All we can see when we put the two nativity accounts together is that John is about six months older than Jesus. And that it would appear that Mary was present at John's birth, though, of course, he could have left the hill country immediately before it. In Mary's pregnancy, God has bent, if not broken, the social taboo of pregnancy before marriage. But the arrival of Mary at Elizabeth's home reveals another expectation being undone, that of a generational order of deference. The commandments tell us about honouring our mother and father And while that is not a law of obey, it sort of establishes a sense of listening to and taking heed of an older generation. 
That idea that those who are younger pay respect and serve the more senior. That was the culture of the day. Yet Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to Mary, why am I so favoured? Why am I so favoured that you are here, that you've come to me? She knows and confirms by the Spirit that Mary is carrying the Lord. Now, of course, there had not been time for word to spread and Mary has not communicated the news of what is happening. But Elizabeth, the older woman, shows deference to Mary, the younger, because of Mary's call by God to be the mother of Jesus. Something has changed in their lives. And this social structure again, has been broken. When I wrote the November Good News letter, which was about kind of environmental issues and stuff like that, um, I, I quite often have this issue of writing the Good News letter and I can't think of anything to write. And then I write too much and I have to start chopping bits out of it. Um, and, I, and I had to chop a bit out of that letter. And the bit that I chopped out um, drew on the fact that uh, I'd been talking about uh, Greta Thunberg and I'd gone on a bit. But I, what I said was, uh, the Bible is clear in saying that older people have gained more experience. In Proverbs 20, the glory of the young is their strength. The grey hair of experience is the splendour of the old. You know, I think most of us, maybe then, other than <laughs> in the back there, um, might have a bit of grey. Maybe not, maybe we've covered it up nicely. Maybe we've experienced but we also remember in Job 32, the teaching that although experience comes from age, wisdom comes from God. And therefore, wisdom is not age dependent, but given by the Holy Spirit. And this is what's happening with Elizabeth and Mary. It is the Spirit's presence which is moving them on and calling them to be who they are called to be. The Spirit comes on Elizabeth. And with that, John leaps for joy at Mary's words. And Elizabeth gives testimony. And so things are turned over. And this concept of turning things on its head continues as Mary sings her song of delight. She glorifies God. Within the words of uh, what we sometimes still call the Magnificat, um, we see things turned over. Now, I doubt many of us have 
uh, sung it in Latin, either recently or maybe even some time ago, but of course that's where it gets its name from. Uh, and so we get used to stuff. But a new world order is spoken of. Rulers removed from their thrones and humble lifted high. The hungry fed, but the rich left with empty bellies. The kingdom of God is sung of as being in fullness. And the words throughout are, are kind of in the past tense, or a past tense that... Is this our experience? Is this what Mary is drawing on as she sings? There are times throughout the history of the scriptures that God does amazing things. He feeds the hungry in the wilderness. He does remove kings from their throne. but not to the completeness of this song. This song speaks of how the Lord has already made a difference in his coming and how the hold of sin is already being defeated by God's loving gift of a son. We know that even 2,000 years on, that the old world order is still very much present. The poor suffer at the hands of the rich. And many are hungry while we have food. The general election this week was very much fought on the topic of nationhood either the topic of Brexit or to the north of the border, arguments about Westminster having control versus Scottish independence. But to a Christian, such topics are inconsequential. It matters not two hoots where an earthly government or authority is situated. These topics are diversionary and divisionary. What matters is whether Christ's kingdom is seen to be coming through those entrusted with power. So I trust that all of you before Thursday, or maybe earlier than that if you had a postal vote, considered where the kingdom was when you went to vote. That you thought about those policies tucked away within the manifestos about helping the poorest in our society without casting judgment on them, about issues maybe like the introduction of humanist wedding ceremonies, proposed reform of abortion law, which would take away the current already limited protections of the unborn child, Propose changes to the Equalities Act that take away single-sex protections, thereby denying that God makes us male and female. 
and also that you thought about how honest and truthful the leaders of each party are and how that actually showed in how they could move ahead with their policies. Such things are the kingdom made of. And such things would be coming out in a new song of kingdom where it to be sung of the day. And the song of Mary is a song that has echoes of the past. It reminds us of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. And it reminds us too of Isaiah, whose words Jesus read in the temple at the start of his ministry. Jesus' manifesto was... The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Again, doesn't that remind you of the song? Of Mary and the need for new world order to come. And this idea of change coming gives the women more to cheer about than just the birth of their two sons. They are looking into the future of humanity and are bearing the future of humanity. As the women share their joy and hope, may we likewise have hope and joy in our expectation of the growth of the kingdom, an expectation based on what we know God does and what God has done. And so we may play our part doing what we can to serve Christ until that day he comes again. Amen.